Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today makes the point, as a cancer survivor, that cancer patients often feel that they've been left on the scrap heap after treatment. It's as if society no longer feels that they have a valuable contribution to make. Chris Lewis has proved that that is clearly not the case, and I'm honored to bring him to your attention. My guest on the podcast today, Chris Lewis. Chris Lewis, you're very, very welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. And I want to start in 2007. In 2007, there was one fateful day you developed a sore throat. Tell us what happened next. Uh, well, in, in fact, it was a series of issues that I had. And the sore throat was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back, if you like. And so it made it very difficult for me to to operate. I, you know, I had sore groin and different bits and pieces. And my wife said, for goodness sake, go to the doctor. Because us men, we're not good at going to the doctor, right? <laughs> and I thought this was only a cold that, that would eventually disappear. But all the other symptoms I had as well hadn't really gone. So that that wasn't making logical sense. I suppose I was just making excuse not to go and bother my poor doctor who's, you know, is busy enough as it is. She got away, my wife. She, she, she literally, my doctor's five minutes from the house, so I don't know why I didn't go before. Anyway, I, I went and he said, oh, Mr. Lewis, we don't see you very often. I said, no, ho- hopefully that's a good thing, right? <laughs> and he said, it is. So he said, that's why I'm a little bit concerned uh, you know, what's the problem? So I, I told him, I said, actually, it's probably more than one problem, but this I can't get rid of, this this sore throat thing. And so he, he had a little look all around and did all the, the blood pressure and all that sort of thing. And then he, when he looked down my, my throat, he said, actually, uh, I need to refer you. You must go immediately to the hospital. Yeah, I was like, whoa, okay. And that happened the, the following day, waited for the blood results. Uh, he phoned me at home. And he said, no, you must go straight away. I've contacted the hospital direct and there'll be somebody waiting there for you, an ENT expert. So I said, oh, okay, and didn't really have time, much time to think about it. And this lady, she, good as gold, she was there. She had the letter. She understood. She put all the stuff down my throat. She said, Mr. Lewis, you have a large set of tonsils. I said, well, that's maybe because I talk a lot, you know. <laughs> and uh, no, no, it's not like that. But they're growing. So I said, oh, okay. That doesn't sound good. And she said, no, but if they continue to grow, they will actually cause you a lot of problem. So we need to take them out. So I said, oh, okay, okay. And she was great. She said, we'll get you in very urgently. Not today, but we'll get you in very urgently and we'll get rid of those tonsils. Brilliant. So a couple of weeks' time, I went to the hospital. Everything was arranged. It was brilliant. And I said at the start, I said, you know, this old man, I was 51 at the time, right? An old man having tonsils out. I said, this must be something quite awful for you. And he said, the, the surgeon, he said, actually, it is, Mr. Lewis. I don't do many of these. And I don't know why that, that struck something in my mind when he said that. So Anyway, the operation, thankfully, was a success. And, of course, you have to have all the crusty toast and the, the, the ice cream to try and make it better. But within two weeks, I was back at work and, and the sore throat had gone. And, and I thought, oh, that's good. That's another hurdle climbed. But then I got a call from the hospital. And 
She said, oh, Mr. Lewis, we need you come to come back for a checkup. So when I went home that night, I said to my wife, I said, hey, you know, I've got a call from the hospital. I said, this is a really good thing. You know, people, they're complaining about the NHS. And, and, uh, and this old boy, you know, he's got in for having his tonsils out and they want to see me again. So I said, you know, why do they can't complain? It's, it's brilliant service. And, you know, she looked at me, Moya, she looked at me and she said, I'm going to come with you. And I said, why? It's only to tooting. You know, it's, it's half an hour on the train. So, no, no, I'm going to come with you. So, anyway, she came and I saw this guy I'd never seen before, very smart chap in a suit. And he said, oh, Mr. Lewis, let me have a look at your tonsils or, you know, your throat. I said, okay. He said, oh, that's healed up nicely. I thought, lovely. <laughs> Off we go. And he said, please have a seat. And he said, while we took your tonsils out, we did a biopsy. I said, okay. And I was starting to think then. And I said, well, what, what did the biopsy show? So he said, unfortunately, it shows you have mantle cell lymphoma stage four. Now, that was sort of Chinese to me because I, I didn't have a clue what the hell that was. And I said, okay, what's that then? And he said, unfortunately, it's cancer. So I said, oh, okay. Uh, what's stage four? So he said, actually, unfortunately, there isn't any stage five. So I was like, really? And then I said, I said, uh, it sounds crazy, I know. I said, but actually, you've got the right file here, you know, because actually, Chris Lewis, there must be millions of them. <laughs> and he said, I do, I do have the right file, and unfortunately, it is you. So I said, okay, what happens next? Because I've been a lucky guy all my life. You, you know, I've got into some scrapes. No health issues whatsoever. And so this was the amazing thing. This was why I couldn't believe that I, it was so bad from being so good. <laughs> anyway, he said, look, we have to, first of all, we need to scan you to see exactly where all the tumours are. And then we need to give you some very aggressive chemotherapy. And then, unfortunately, we're going to have to look for a transplant for you because you're not going to survive just by putting that in remission because uh, it's going to come back fairly quickly. You have a very aggressive strain. So then I entered that was a, my new life, uh, going to the hospital, having the scans. When, when I got the scans back, the tumours were all over me. You know, everywhere there was a lymph node, there was a tumour under my, under my arms, in my groin. It even made it onto my bowel. So things weren't too clever. And... Uh, very, but very quickly, the system cracked on. It, it opened up and everything happened. So that was an incredible thing. You know, the chemo was organized. Everybody got on it. I had a transplant coordinator given to me who would organize all the stuff in the hospital, all the different appointments and everything else. She, she would organize that. So the journey began. And I wanted to, I was still working at the time. And it was a challenge for me. I wanted to work through my chemo. I was self-employed. It meant financially that I would continue to earn. That was one thing, but that wasn't the driving factor. The driving factor was the psychological thing for me, was to try and get through chemo. Everyone told me how bad chemo was, but I wanted to try and do, I wanted to try and get through it and work just to prove to myself that I could do something, right? Uh, anyway, we had... I did it for three months. The hospital very kindly organised that I had my chemo on a, on a uh, Friday afternoon. 
so that I had Saturday and Sunday to recover. I went into work on Monday afternoon, so I just didn't get up early and I went Monday afternoon. And we did that for three months. And then, of course, by that time, it took cumulative effects and I, I was out of it then. <laughs> so that, and then, then we had to wait, of course, for, for a stem cell transplant to be found, a donor. And we're lucky in England. We have the Anthony, Anthony Nolan Stem Cell Transplant Organisation and they, they have to register all around the world. And the nice thing being common, Moyes, they found me five five matches in London, right? So, you know, my 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 lucky streak in a way was continuing. Yes, a fantastic story, Chris, and it sounds very much like the NHS, as it always does, stepped in when you really needed it. You can't complain about what happened to that point. You're getting good care, surgery, chemotherapy, and then the transplant. So what happened after that? You'd stopped working at that point. Yes, I had. Pre-transplant, there was a there was a little period between them finding the donor. Obviously, he has to go through all the tests to to make sure that he's clinically and medically fit to to donate. So that took a that took a little bit of time for him to go through that. Then to to check that he was able to deliver the number of cells that he needed to deliver. They had to do it twice. So there was a gap there all the time. Of course not knowing that that was a certainty because nothing like that is a certainty. He, he, he may have backed out at the last minute. You know, those, those sort of things were, were, were very difficult. My time was, was spent having the various tests that I needed pre-transplant. So they have to ensure, as I'm sure you're probably aware, they, they have to ensure that everything, you don't go into transplant with any, any other underlying condition. So you have, you have no infections. And you have no, so they do brain scans and then they, they test all your vital organs to actually check whether your heart, whether your liver, your kidneys are actually strong enough to take what is going to happen to you. So those tests took up a bit of time. They said the fantastic words of, well, if you have a bit of time, Mr. Lewis, get all your affairs in order, which sometimes brings the reality of it. I treated that, it was like a, it's strange when you get into, you know, you do something for a living and I, and I was a business guy and, and so everything was a project to me. So this became a project to make sure all the boxes were ticked. I mean, the lady in the hospital, the, the transplant coordinator, obviously she, she was doing that, but, you know, I was filling up my diary where I had to be at a certain time. It was, it was exactly like a business project. So thankfully, everything went really well. The only caution was that that it was coming to Christmas time, and they, the, the the clinicians, said to me, actually, we don't really want to do it over Christmas because that's our weakest time. Because you know, so many people, all the experts, they're on holiday, and and and, and our care is not a hundred percent as it as it normally would be, but. If you're willing to go with it, we're willing to go with it because we don't have any choice. You know, the donor's ready, you're ready, and and if we wait longer, the disease may come back. So I went in on the 10th of December, I think it was, and then got chemo pretty much to virtual death, I think, in, in, in 10 days. And then came the stem cell transplant itself, which was a, an anticlimax, I have to say, actually. Everyone was talking about this this incredible thing, you know, and I, I thought, 
there's going to be red carpet, there's going to be bugles in the room. But it wasn't like that at all. There was a, there was a guy on a motorbike that had brought this little yellow bag and, and the nurses came and, and they put it up on the, the holder and they said, here's your transplant. You know, th- these are your life-saving cells. And I said, is that all there is? <laughs> these smell these things. It was brilliant. It, it was a really emotional time to watch that, those life-saving cells drip into your body. It took a couple of hours for them to be well in and uh, very emotional that to watch that. These are these life-saving cells coming into my body now. What's going to happen next? Because, of course, up to that point, you'd been told that the prognosis was not very good and that things were not going to work out like this. You had stage four lymphoma, which had a terrible prognosis. And yet here you were receiving the very thing that was going to see you through the rest of your days, which was fantastic. Did you ever meet the donor? Did you, do you get a chance to do that? Now, that's a great question. Boy, it's a really great question. So unless you've ever been in that position, so, so you know, you, we all do things for people in life and uh, we do them because we want to do them. We, who, who could refuse someone who, who's asking you something that you can do without too much effort, right? And so we all do things to help people. But when someone's gone out of their way, somebody you don't know even, to come to hospital to have all those tests. He was a young lad, by the way, of 22, which I was told. So why did he do that, young lad of 22? I mean, my kids of 22 didn't even know anything about donating stem cells, right? So he must have known something about it. But anyway, it was, a, you know, so when that was coming into me and the first thing I wanted to do was, was to say thank you. You know, that, that, that's the thing you want to do. And they said to me, I mean, it's slightly different rules now because bearing in mind this was 14 years ago, right? So you have to write this letter. If you want to get in contact with them at the time, you had to write this letter and they would filter it out because it mustn't be too emotional for, them, for that person receiving it, right? Well, I got that. But by the time they filtered my letter, it was like basically left me with thank you. <laughs> you know, it took me about an hour to write it. And they went, no, 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 no. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they passed it on in answer to your question. They passed it on to the young man and um, I didn't get any reply. But with the wisdom of time, if you like, and I've had a long time to think about it, I understand why or maybe why. But the ironic thing was that my stem cell transplant failed about three years later and they had to bring the guy back. Luckily, they got hold of him and they had to bring him back to donate more cells. Anyway, I wrote another letter and still he didn't reply. So I'm not upset about that. I take the positive that, you know, there are some bad stories, Moyes, of of transplants not going well. You know, I've seen that Delft person in the work that I do. So, and I've seen the connection that people do have. These days, it's much easier than it was because we didn't have social media and that back in those 14 years ago. We didn't, we didn't have that. So it would have been meaning really a face-to-face meeting and would he be on my Christmas card list? Would I be on his Christmas card list? Is he part of my family anymore? Does he really care about my grandchildren? You know, so there was there was no problem like that, if you like. And he made his choice, uh, and, I, and I respect his choice for that. I'm sure he made it for the very right reasons, but I didn't take it personally. 
No, but uh, like you, we think that is a fantastically uh, generous thing to do. And anyone who's thinking of doing it, this is a good time to hear this kind of story that it does really give somebody another chance at life, which is fantastic. And to the point we were making earlier on, where we don't see the best of people here, we, you absolutely got the very best of somebody who wanted to do the right thing for its own sake and didn't want a bit of any hoo-ha about it. I want to go on from that to life after the transplant and after your treatment. And the statement that you made uh, that healthcare is too far from the customer. Tell us a little bit about that, because clearly the NHS had come through for you at that point, but it doesn't always continue that way, does it? No, it doesn't. And, and um, obviously, I've had a long experience now of, of NHS and my personal experience of NHS. Even to this day, I have the same team, right? I have, uh, I have my consultant's personal number. I have his secretary's email. I know the chief executive of the hospital. I do sometimes for the hospital. They do marvellous things, not only for me. So, uh, no, I, I don't have a criticism of my individual journey. But so what I found, Moez, was that society as a whole, not just NHS, not a hospital with any GP, nothing, but society as a whole wasn't prepared, or still isn't, by the way, and that's now getting worse, not better, because of COVID, is not really prepared to work with people that have long-term disabilities. And, and cancer is, in many cases, a long-term disability. Society is not ready for that. There's lots of platitudes and I must admit, I expected more. Now, you know, I've run a multi-million pound business. I have talent in, in my own field. And to be honest with you, when I came out of hospital, I found that very difficult for anyone to even ask beyond the cancer. You know, they saw you as this poor guy who got cancer. They didn't see me as a multi-million pound business owner. They didn't see me as, as a person, as a father. As a grandfather, they didn't see me as that. So what I found was discrimination everywhere I went. And I'm not a shy guy, right? I'm not a shy guy. And definitely there was discrimination at the bank, right? So I, there had to be, I mean, I, to be honest, I didn't tell my bank. I only told them when I was getting towards the end of it. I know when they were, when I got to 60, they needed a review of, of my finances, but I mean, fortunately, I paid my mortgage off by that time. And they said I had to close the account because I had cancer. So that's just one area. The banks, they don't want to lend to people who've got cancer. So, yeah, now, but the biggest one of all really is the job scenario because that's where it all starts. Society as a whole doesn't really want to employ someone with long term condition. We understand why. But actually, not all, as we found through COVID, not all jobs are nine to five where you have to go in the office, right? Not all, not all jobs are like that. There's got to be a lot more thinking about there, There's so many talented people out there that have one condition or another, not just cancer, by the way. You know, there are plenty of other diseases which are killers, in the, you know, in the world, uh, up there with cancer. Not, and I'm not discussing COVID even. But society is not ready for that. So... Uh, you know, if you want to go on holiday, they want to lump up your premiums. The, the, even when you drive a car, 
because you're on different medications and everything else, you have to go through the whole list of that. But the worst is jobs. I never wanted a job anyway because I, I worked for myself. I was too too beyond that. <laughs> kind of work for somebody, you know what I mean? And so yeah, that didn't bother me. I would always make a living. That that doesn't concern me. But but actually, you know, the average person who is used to being employed by somebody, very, very difficult for them to get employed. Once cancer goes on the CV, because I don't know what it's like in us, but in the UK, we have to de- declare that that's a problem. And once people see that, they don't want to employ you. And, you know, all the, all the sort of bits of research and experience that I have, most people over time, within two or three years, even if they have a job, at the, let's say they, they have a kind employer, maybe the state, you know, they want to show that, that they're supporting these people. But after time, maybe those people inevitably can't keep up with the, with the level of job that they had originally. So they want to try and maybe step down, do a few less hours, but the companies on the whole make it very difficult for people to move around with cancer. So that's not an NHS issue. That's a society issue. But what I what I found was also that, you know, the practicalities of living, I don't want – we've gone to a time when we didn't get any information, right? We've gone from that time. We've gone to – you can go into a Macmillan Centre or a Maggie Centre or wherever you go, and there's millions of books. And actually, I don't want to read about my cancer. I don't want some, some, some soppy cartoon face with tears. And, you know, I want some practical help. And nobody, where, where do I go for work? You know, what sort of benefits am I entitled to? All those practical things. Basically, they felt awkward because they, they, they're not set up for that. It's a bit better now. It's a bit better now. But basically, because social media has come along and given us a voice, that they can hear. So it's not a question of it's not a question of NHS letting me down. It's a question of society. If you ask me what success would look like after I came out of a hospital, success was coming out of hospital. Right? <laughs> that was my success. <laughs> if you ask my consultant, what does success look like from his perspective? I am it. I totally get that. And I think you're quite right, Chris. And I see this, as a doctor, I see this a lot. You get people who have a chronic illness, whether it's diabetes or whether it's early dementia, whether it's cancer, whatever it happens to be. Heart problems, right? Heart problems. And suddenly they are not employable. They're not fit for this and they're not fit for that. And society is much the poorer for it because you're losing talent by the bucket load as these people are taken out of society. Of course, COVID has changed all that because we now realize that you can work from your sitting room on a computer and deliver the goods that employers need, uh, which is a fantastic thing. One of the few silver linings in this particular topic. So let's go to where to from here for you, Chris. So you've done fantastically well. You're right. You're a success in the sense that you're here and you're contributing. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Oh, that's a question. <laughs> Hopefully alive. <laughs> that's an ambition. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, because I, it's funny, I, look, I love people, Moyes, and uh, 
you know, I'm not a corporate man at all. And and some of my pals, you know, I hear the corporate interviews and, and I just laugh and or cry at the same time. You know, I can't think that these these are great people asking these questions. You know, I can't, I couldn't do that. But the five years, I know what you're talking about, right? So, yeah, yeah, and I was being serious, actually. The five years is staying alive. My grandchildren are getting older. I've got three grandkids I never thought I'd see. I've seen my youngest son get married. I never thought I'd see that. I've seen my oldest son be happy in his life. So I've seen all those things. I've seen my wife enjoy 15 years of retirement. And what I set up with my cancer work is I aim to help as many people as I can, but I'm only me and I've got some wonderful support. So I don't have any ambition of being, you know, 500 million pound company or any of those things. My days of that are all gone now. I don't have that desire at all. I'm not motivated by money. Thankfully, I don't have to work for money. So that's made life easier for me because I pick and choose the work that I want to do and the work that has impact. Right, and you know, in clinical medical, there's a lot of work that doesn't have impact. Right, there's, there's a lot of meetings, for example. Okay, <laughs> and if you want to do something, you're you're actually talking about ten years down the line when half the people in the group might even be dead, and the government's changed three times. So we've learned through COVID that actually, much as we must have a direction of travel, of course. We must have a direction of travel, but that can change at any minute. So I'm a very agile working person. I'm very innovative. I don't want to touch anything that's already been done before. And I just want to make people aware, more aware. That was my original thing of what the problems people face coming out of cancer treatment are. In fact, it's more, isn't it? Because when I started the treatment, it was one in three of us that would be affected. Now it's one in two. Can you imagine? We have a situation now with COVID, right? That all we're talking about is COVID, certainly in the UK. Cancer barely even gets a mention. But half the nation at some stage in their life, so if if we had 60-odd million people we have in this country, 30 million people will be affected by cancer. Now, we don't have that many with COVID. You know, we've, we've lost, I don't know, 150, 160, whatever it is. Every death's a bad one. But we're talking about 30 million people and we're not even discussing that problem. We're not even discussing it. So my job is to continually poke the bear at the top level, continually. And so their their arse is so painful that they don't want to sit down on it. So really it's about making people more aware of the situation that we are in and aware that these people, people who've been treated, successfully treated for this illness, have so much more to give and so much more to contribute, whether they are employed or whether they're self-employed or whether they're just going to be doing something that contributes more generally to the lives of people. It's not the end. Success doesn't mean walking out of the hospital. Success is being a grandfather for many years to come. Success is contributing to the welfare of the family and to society and to giving back, as you say, as you're doing now. And I want to talk then about Simpal, because this is one of your projects. Tell us about Simpal. Okay, yes, yeah, Simpal. I, I do, because of my illness and my unreliability, if you like, you, you know, I have to go to hospital a lot and, and anything. Can, like now I've got a cold for my granddaughter literally from two days ago. So, you know, I'm very, I am very vulnerable 
to and so with with covid etc and all that i've been doing more work on the computer normally i'm traveling around uh, thankfully i'm uh, an honored guest wherever i go i'm talking about not only my story but i talk to clinicians about how they can improve they ask me as a patient how can they do better so i think in one of my videos i've written i'm a conduit if you like because there are two languages here involved doesn't matter whichever country so there's is science speak and there's patient speak. And at the moment, we have two lots of speak that can't be translated <laughs> so, or it's not translated well, let's say that. But Simpao, yeah, the Simpao was an interesting one because we started that about four years ago and I was approached the wonders of the internet, Moyes, right? That's how we marry her, right? The wonders of the internet. Thank goodness for the internet. It's been my best time, really. I was approached by a lady, my partner in, in Simpow, actually, she's become, and she runs a mobile phone business. And she, right out the blue, she said, Chris, I want to speak to you. My, my family's been impacted by cancer, like, like many others. And I've got to the stage where she said, I mean, she's 40s, right? And she said, I've got to the stage where I've built my business, I'm doing that, but I want something more, right? And I said, I know where you are there, right? That's about giving back. So anyway, I was impressed. She came up to Croydon to meet me. She was down on the South Coast. She was very keen. So I thought that's a good sign, you know, someone wants to come and meet me personally. Anyway, she said, look, is there any way I can help with mobile phones? And I said, well, yes, because we have what we call cancer poverty. So what happens is a lot of people that are earning money pre-cancer, they're not able to. After cancer, once the treatment starts, you know, they lose their jobs. We've spoken about it, all that sort of stuff earlier on. And if you're in a particularly, let's say, a manual job, you know, where you're self-employed, you're up cleaning windows or you're decorating a house or doing a roof, you don't want to be doing that with chemo, right? You know, so very quickly, the, the supply of money disappears. And actually, the thing that you need most urgently during those difficult times is digital communication. Everything works digital now. Not saying that's right or wrong, by the way, but everything pretty much works digital. So if you are, for whatever the reason, digitally excluded, you can't get the services that you need. So there are plenty of people around like that. And I said, look, this is my feeling that if we do this, we start a website, not hard these days. I said, I'm not going to market it. I'm not going to the big charities I'm not going to the NHS because they're, they're obstacles to progress, those people. I'm quite comfortable with my own marketing. I don't need them to tell people what I'm doing. I'll tell them myself. So we did, we did a little project with a couple of my little small charity friends. I said, do us a favour, give one of these away every couple of weeks. Let's see how it works because we think this is a good idea. And, it, of course, it was a good idea. So... We, we didn't uh, make the charity. We didn't create that, but we had to quickly. We had to get the charity going, so it's now an official charity. And there is nobody in the world, I can kind of say that with confidence, nobody in the world that does what we do. In the States, nothing. Uh, quite shocking, actually. <laughs> quite shocking. But anyway, we, we got on with it. We don't really care what other people think. We just got on with it. So... I had my own publicity, you know, I've, I've got a lot of followers on social media and, and I know all the charities in this country and I know all the hospitals in this country. So 
it was easy for me. I just rang a few people up and said, look, we've got this thing. Do you got any punters that might want it? And it was like, oh, blimey, yeah, we've got loads of people haven't got phones. It's not working. They can't afford it. So we just started from there. We're all volunteers. So we, we did have a little ambition in the early days because we always have ambition to be a bit bigger than we are. But COVID came along and then stomped on that. So basically, because we were only small and because we've only got volunteers, we, we were able to stay alive during COVID. So in a way, the fact that we didn't employ people to, to do it would turned out to be the greatest thing <laughs> ever <laughs> because we're still going. We don't have massive overheads and we're still helping people, not as many as we'd like to, but, but, but that's the financial situation of the world currently. But we've done a lot of things. We've got a lot of people helping us. You know, they all do it pro bono, which is which is incredible. So we've got, you know, we don't need all those big charities, as I said. We get all our stuff. All our stuff is personal referral. It all comes through the internet. We've got a very simple system to deal with it. And, of course, what happened with COVID, the, the digital exclusion thing became a big subject because, you know, kids, that was the big thing. People didn't have all their fast-flowing internet which they really needed because they were sitting at home all day. The kids didn't have tablets or mobile phones and all of this thing. So what we talked about four years ago, you know, now we're getting asked left, right and centre for our expertise because our stuff's already running. You know, we could just put someone online like that. A lot of people had a go at it, Moyes, you know, the, 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 the big boys who need a bit of publicity, the O2s, they had a go, oh, we're going to do this for the people and that for the people. The Daily Mail did it. But what they do is they get all the equipment and then leave people to it, and hopefully they're going to connect up to O2. And that's the problem. They don't have the money to do it regularly. <laughs> so it's only ever a plaster. It's not really a, a permanent fix. So we, we, we supply phones and the SIM cards for six months because we felt that that six months would give people an opportunity to hopefully get back on their feet a lot of people don't, unfortunately, so we end up having to extend their service. But that's that's the idea of it, really, is to give them some help when they most need it. And nothing, nothing's signed. It's all totally free. If we give a phone, we don't want it back. We don't want it back. There's no complex paperwork. That's it. I was thinking as you spoke, Chris, that you mentioned that you'd run a multi-million pound business and you had a sense of what business is about. You just proved it. You proved that you can do this on your own just by considering what works and what you need to make it work and not relying on anyone. You're confident, you're a visionary. Now, we were talking earlier on that England lost at the football today, but to me, on this day, England clearly has a winner and you are it. You and the 22-year-old young man who donated his stem cells, you're making such a difference. You're quite right. Cancer, poverty, cancer itself and the impact that it has on people's lives, that is over and above what the NHS or any other healthcare system can do for those people. And for that, we are extraordinarily grateful and very pleased to bring you to our listeners. And I wish you all the very best and hope to speak to you again very soon. Thank you very much for having me. Listen, the, the Australian thing is a great honour for me. For me, look, I'm well known in the UK and in lots of other stuff on social media. But actually, it's very important with those issues that I talk about. They're not just UK. 
they're, they're in every country in the world in, in slightly different forms, maybe. But the discrimination against cancer or other long-term diseases is there in every country and the problems that it brings all the So really, it's been a great honour for me. Thank you very much. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.